another special edition of the Barnhart Podcast. This is this should be episode number 130, and this is being recorded on um, the vigil of the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, December 7th, 2020. We have a special guest today. Um, we have a uh, an academic, a Thomistics professor, a philosophy professor, um, Italian by birth, but... Um, uh, a polyglot speaks pretty much any language you, you want to throw at him. And he is here today because he is going to give us some very good information about the Immaculate Conception with regards to St. Thomas Aquinas. And so joining us today, I'm very proud to have him on the podcast, is Dr. Luca Gili. Welcome, Dr. Luca. Thank you. Thank you very much, Anne. So it's a pleasure to be with you. I think uh, we should start uh, simply by reading the, the dogma, the way it was stated by Pope Pius IX in uh, 1854. I don't know if you have the text in front of you. Um, I do. I you sent it. it to me via yeah. email. Yeah. Go right ahead. We declare, pronounce, and define that the doctrine which holds that the most blessed Virgin Mary, in the first instance of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege granted by Almighty God, in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, was preserved free from all stain of original sin, is a doctrine revealed by God, and therefore to be believed firmly and constantly by all the faithful. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. So, yeah, so the definition comes in 1854. Uh, the Pope who defines it, it is uh, blessed Pius IX. So we are, uh, as uh, people usually uh, uh, like to remember, we are only four years before uh, the apparitions of Our Lady at Lourdes, where she presented herself as the Immaculate Conception, uh, speaking the dialect of uh, Saint Bernadette. And we are at the end of a long process, a long process where uh, this doctrine was uh, far from settled. So there are many steps in this process. And uh, one of these steps is, of course, uh, the doctrine of St. Thomas Aquinas, which, which we will be uh, analyzing today. So the one of the main champions of the Immaculate Conception is blessed John Duns Scotus, who uh, has been beatified by Pope John Paul II and was a Franciscan. Uh, he is looked at by Thomists as, you know, like uh, as red is looked at by, by bulls. Uh, but uh, because uh, he had, uh, he holds many doctrines that are incompatible with the teaching of St. Thomas. But when it comes to the Immaculate Conception, it was, of course, definitely right. Now, what is the problem with the Immaculate Conception? The idea is that from the instant of her conception, Our Lady was preserved from all sins, including original sin. Now, this seems to entail that from the very instant when um, the, the, the true, um, so, as uh, St. Thomas would say, the, the, the two principles coming from the mother and the father, so uh, in his wording would be blood and the semen, uh, were joined together to form a new human being. Well, from that instant, God sent a soul to be joined uh, to, that, uh, to that material composite. And uh, the, the soul of Our Lady was immaculate and spotless from that very instant in time. Now, this is probably uh, what we think today, because we, we think that uh, uh, the, the, the very first insta instance of existence of a human being 
is um, the fecundation. So when the egg uh, is joined with the 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 the, the, the male, the sperm. Uh, that was not the case uh, in the Middle Ages. So. So least, can I uh, can I jump in because something you said was very was very interesting. You said that they were defining it as the coming together, the joining of blood and semen. And I think it's important for people to remember that they didn't have microscopes and they didn't understand that that such such units as cells even existed. And so how they how they uh, conceptualized how how uh, the conception of a baby worked was that it was basically like mixing the mother's blood with the father's semen would result in the creation of life and they had no understanding or or knowledge of of what an, an egg cell was or what a sperm cell was or what chromosomes or DNA and I think a lot of people today um, just really forget that and we, we take for granted because we've all known about about this stuff our entire lives and we forget that these brilliant brilliant people just because of the lack of technology in those days that they, they didn't know what was going on they literally thought that if you mixed a woman's blood with a man's semen that a baby would come out of that is you know if I'm saying anything that's incorrect you know jump in and, and yeah, correct me that, that, that's absolutely correct mm -hmm. I, I don't know if uh, we can open a, um, a parenthesis at this point but uh, you know sometimes you read uh, quite entertaining things so uh, Arizona has a book that is called the generation of animals where he talks about the way in which um, excuse me uh, yes uh, animals are generated and another one it is called the history of animals where he sort of classified classifies uh, the uh, the realm of animals and he talks also about the generation of human beings in that particular book and so there's a passage where it says that uh, the the menstrual cycle uh, should be around three months uh, according to all translators and uh, so yes sure they didn't get uh, how it works uh, you know like the the but but probably it's the translator who are wrong so i have an article coming out on that and you know i i try to argue that probably aristotle understood that the menstrual cycle was about 28 days uh, if you read the, so yeah they had lots of things right but uh, yeah they didn't get uh, of course the the cellular uh, uh, composition of, of the of the human being because they didn't have the microscope but this idea of the DNA is very important because uh, DNA what is DNA DNA is the information uh, it, and information uh, was very clear uh, was very clearly a, a component of human being already for this person and this is gonna be important for us later on in this in this chat we, that we are having yeah no absolutely because <clears throat> That's the whole point. So uh, there were two schools of thought in the in the Middle Ages. So there were some people, including St. Thomas, who, th who thought that um, a human being has only one form, and this form is the soul. So this, the form in uh, is the English for, for the Latin form, but it's just information, it's structure, it's the order. Because the, the, the correlate of form is matter, at least in, uh, in composite beings, as we are, in composite substances, as they would say. And matter for uh, Aristotle, for for Saint Thomas, is the pure undeterminate. It's something that could not exist uh, without structure, without order. Uh, prime matter, so matter uh, deprived of any 
type of information structure and so forth does not exist is is a mere abstract um, uh, term now <clears throat> why is this important because uh, any composite substance has its own uh, structuring form and in the case of a human being for st thomas there's just one form and this is the the human soul this was not the case for uh, many Franciscans. For example, Franciscans thought, I mean, not all of them, of course, but uh, overall, um, Franci Franciscans were, were saying that we have several forms, we have several capacities, several functions, and each function should be attributed to a different form. All these forms are coordinated by one higher form that is our soul, but that's not the only one because at the moment of death, for example, uh, the soul, the, the rational soul leaves the body and goes to judgment. But uh, what, it, what we are left with, the corpse still keeps the shape of the living body. And this shape should be attributed to some form. Now, in the, in the understanding of St. Thomas, the form of the body is entirely replaced by a new different form. And then you can call the corpse a body just by homonymy. It's not a real, a real body. It's, uh, it's something different. It's something different that uh, is still part of the human person just because it has um, a relationship to to the immortal soul and because god decided to to resurrect us all on the last day but in itself the corpse has a new form that is not uh that is not that has nothing to do with human being with with the with the living form of a, of a living human being i.e uh, the soul the immortal soul. Now, this is important because for St. Thomas, like uh, all human beings, except our Lord, for sure, except with the exception of our Lord and Savior, but probably also Our Lady. So th this is a big question mark for those who read St. Thomas. All human beings are formed over time in the womb of their mothers. How, how so? Well, St. Thomas, together with Aristotle, distinguishes several functions of the human being, the vegetative function, i.e. the function of, you know, like nourishing, growing, uh, being, being able to uh, have offsprings. So everything that we have in common with plants. And he has um, another uh, function that is, uh, you know, like an animal function, the capacity to perceive. And then there are higher functions like thinking, uh, willing, and so forth. Now, to each of these functions, there's a different form that enables us to uh, perform the corresponding act. So at the beginning, from the conception, we, we have not a human being. We have, um, as you know, like uh, today's abortionists would say, just a mass of cells, a mass of, <laughs> it's sad to say, but uh, well, that's actually what St. Thomas uh, would actually think uh, about the formation of a new human being in the womb of his mother, or his or her mother. And then the vegetative form at some point is replaced by the uh, by the form that enables us to perceive. And later on, God sends uh, the human soul because the human soul does not come from our, our parents. And uh, from the instant of the union, the human soul with this uh, material composite, we have a new human being. So the new human being uh, does not come into existence at the moment of the union of the egg with the sperm, but rather later on uh, after the fecundation, which is a, a very odd doctrine. Uh, it's a doctrine that has to do 
with uh, St. Thomas biology, but there's also a metaphysical idea behind. And so the metaphysical idea is, is what is interesting for us. For him, you could not have uh, a rational form, so a soul, in a matter that is not yet able to perform uh, all the functions that are proper uh, to a human being, a full-fledged human being. Now, here there is a problem. There's a catch-22, and a catch-22 is our Lord, our Lord. He was conceived perfect. And now the question is, uh, was there enough matter for his soul uh, to be united uh, with the matter? The answer is, uh, of St. Thomas is yes, because even though matter was very little, not in the very beginning uh, of, of the existence of our Lord as a, as a true human being, yet, um, you know, miraculously, this matter was disposed to receive the rational form. Now, in my opinion, it's just a matter of uh, biological notion because St. Thomas probably didn't have clear uh, how, you know, something very tiny, very little is able to receive um, something as, you know, like high and noble as, as a rational soul. But we know that the information of one single cell is the exact same information that we have in the full-fledged human being when, where there are, I don't know, billions of cells, I imagine. Right, the, fer the fertilized zygote contains the entire genetic code that the human being possesses for the duration of their existence. And, you know, a cur current event cross-reference that we can make is, of course, all of the madness with the, with the transgender and all that. I mean, you're conceived, you have your chromosomes, X, you're either XX or XY on whatever pair that is, and you're either female or you're male, and that's just an end of it, and it never, ever changes. They, but they had absolutely no idea of any of that. So they're... Thomas is just is just basically grasping in the dark, trying to make sense when he didn't have anywhere even close to the full data set to work with. Yes, so he would still say that abortion is a mortal sin, but uh, so that, that's another uh, problematic statement that he makes. So abortion is a mortal sin, even if it happens before the animation of of, uh, of the humanization, let's say, of this uh, mass of cells, of this uh, new little thing that is growing in order to become a human being. Isn't, uh, isn't would, the word, yeah. isn't the term that is used with regards to this and Thomas, isn't it ensoulment? Is that what he used? Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Animation or ensoulment, yes, absolutely. And, um, no, why, why would he say that? Well, because this little thing uh, that is not a human being, in his opinion, as the potency to become a human being because you have this replacement of forms and there is some sort of uh, temporal continuum. Uh, yes. So that, that for me is quite problematic in his own terms because he would say, for example, that uh, of course, when you eat uh, you know, like beef, uh, beef on, on your plate has a certain form that is the form of a, yeah, essentially of a corpse of, of a cow that has been cooked. And then uh, by digestion and so forth, you transform that, that form of, of the beef into your own form. So you have a rep so the beef on your plate is potentially a part of you. It's potentially a human being if you want, but nobody would say that, uh, uh, you know, like destroying or uh, uh, an animal uh, 
would uh, would be a moral sin. Well, today they would say that, but yeah. uh, you know, like yeah. back in his day, they wouldn't say that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so here we have probably a catch-22 for St. Thomas, but he was at least able to see that uh, our Lord and Savior from the instant of his conception, conception, i.e. Uh, zygote formation, was um, a full-fledged human being. So he had already uh, the soul uh, of a human being. But Together, now let, let me get this straight. Yes. Did, did Thomas say that our Lord and presumably Our Lady, they were the only two human beings who were full-fledged human beings from the instant of their conception, and he drew a distinction between Our Lord, Our Lady, and the entire rest of the human race in this way? Uh, he doesn't uh, say anything uh, you know, clear about Our Lady, but about Our Lord, yes. I mean, for him, he singles out our Lord as the only one who is a full-fledged human being from the instant of, of conception. If St. Thomas thought that Our Lady was uh, conceived immaculate, as he certainly thought when he was in his 20s, well, then that would apply also to Our Lady. Later on in his career, so here is the thing. Later on in his career, St. Thomas um, revised a bit his opinion on Our Lady. So we can actually review these opinions like uh, real quick. So he says, uh, in his commentary on the sentences of Peter Lombard, Peter, uh, the sentences of Peter Lombard were the handbook of um, theology for theology students back in his days, I mean, before being replaced by the Summa of St. Thomas himself. And St. Thomas wrote a commentary, not the usual 2,000 pages commentary you would write when you are in your mid-20s, no? Yeah. If, you were, <laughs> if you weren't, you know, broken apart for, by uh, contemporary education. And uh, so in that commentary, he clearly states that Our Lady is immaculate from her conception. So he has, she has been preserved from um, original sin, like entirely. Well, then later on, uh, probably he was uh, meditating on, uh, on the letter to the Romans by St. Paul. So I have now uh, here in front of me, chapter 5 in the Dwight Rames translation. I read uh, uh, verses 11. Uh, to 13 but also we glory in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received reconciliation wherefore as by one man sin entered into this world and by sin death and so death, death passed upon all men in whom all have sinned for until the law uh, sin was in the world but sin was not imputed when the law was not now End of quotation. So here the interesting bit is in whom all have sinned. Now, of course, there is somebody who has not sinned, and it is our Lord. And you know that's pretty obvious to everyone, even to, if I dare say, even to Protestants. But uh, what about Our Lady? And uh, so here are two schools of thought. One school of thought says... Um, our Lady was entirely preserved from sin, full stop, from the instant of her conception, or at any rate, from the instant of her um, uh, coming to existence as a human being. The other school of thought is she was cleansed uh, from all sins, including original sin and everything that uh, comes with it, in virtue of the merit of the merits of uh, our Lord and Savior, because everyone receives uh, justification in Him, i.e. In Jesus Christ, so everyone uh, should also include his mother. And uh, here is the interesting bit because uh, if uh, we started with the the dogma, the way it was uh, proclaimed by Pope Pius the Ninth, 
The interesting bit of that proclamation is um, the, the, the phrase, in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the savior of the human race. So she was granted this singular grace and privilege by God Almighty in view of the merits of Jesus Christ. So she is also, <clears throat> in a way, um, redeemed by her son. The only thing is that she, she has not been cleansed uh, by anything. She was preserved. But this grace of preservation is a consequence of the mediation of our Lord on the cross. Because all, all graces come to us thanks to the mediation uh, of Jesus Christ and thanks to his passion. Including, including this extraordinary grace uh, that is the, the Immaculate Conception of Our Lady. Now, if we go back to St. Thomas, he says, well, certainly she was born, immac she was born immaculate. She, so she must have been sanctified uh, before birth. That go that's for sure, because we know that this happened to St. John the Baptist. We know that this happened to the prophet Jeremiah. So why not to Our Lady? I mean, you, it's pretty obvious to any Christian that in any hierarchy of saints, she's at the top. And so... If anything uh, happened to uh, a saint, that, however great is Lord uh, than her, it should have happened also to her. So it's a principle of convenience. The question is, when did it happen? Now, uh, here is the, it's the funny thing, I think. In, uh, uh, St. Thomas accepts here in the, in the Summa and then later on um, in his commentary on the Hail Mary that uh, Our Lady was conceived in sin. So, which uh, would sound heretical today, after the the proclamation of the dogma by uh, Pope Pius the Ninth, but uh, he adds that the 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 conception of Our Lady is celebrated in many churches, even though it's not celebrated in the Roman Church. Now, the fact that it's celebrated in many churches entails that it should be something holy. Because the church never celebrates anything that is not holy. So the, the famous principle, lex orandi, lex credendi, which today you know, is often invoked by uh, trad people in order to, uh, you know, to, to bring back altar rails and so forth. It's a very true principle. And St. Thomas was extensively using it. Do you allow me to, to make a parenthesis about something that happened recently? So, yeah, so, um, you know... Um, there's a famous sanctuary in Italy, the, uh, the sanctuary of Loreto, that actually was very important for Pope Pius IX because um, he was healed of epilepsy uh, in, that, in that shrine uh, by praying to Our Lady. And so let's jump in and, and remind the listeners that for a priest or a seminarian to have epilepsy and be having seizures was almost always a, a disqualifier. You couldn't be a priest you couldn't be ordained if there was a risk that you would have an epileptic seizure while you were celebrating mass. And so for him to be cured of epilepsy and then to go on and be a priest and bishop and pope is, is, is just, it's, it's a much bigger miracle than the modern ear might hear at first blush. It's a really, really big deal. Exactly. So we would not have had uh, Pope Pius IX, we would not have had one of the greatest popes of human history had it not been for this miracle uh, from Our Lady. So, uh, so uh, graces always come no, uh, together. No? So you don't get just one, you get many because God is good. And um, 
So what is this shrine? Well, uh, there is a statue of a Madonna, of a black Madonna, and uh, but it's not about this black statue that has actually been rebuilt in the 20s after the first one got burned. It's about the walls. So in that shrine, there are the three walls of the house of Nazareth, where the incarnation took place, where the first mass was celebrated by the apostles, where Our Lady lived uh, together with St. Joseph and, uh, and our Lord uh, for many years. So these three walls were brought to Loreto uh, by angels. Now, this may sound crazy, but uh, it's actually the truth, as it has been attested and witnessed by the liturgy of the church for centuries and centuries. So the liturgy of the church for several centuries had um, a memory of the miraculous translation of, of the three walls of the house of Nazareth to Loreto. Why did that happen? Because Nazareth was under siege uh, by uh, Muslims who wanted to destroy, actually destroy uh, these important relics. And so divine providence decided to uh, take them over to Italy for uh, you know some reasons that we will discover one day, probably at our, uh, at our final judgment. However, However, what did happen recently? Well, Cardinal Sara decided to replace uh, this memory of the miraculous translation with the memory of Our Lady of Loreto, which doesn't mean much to me, honestly. So uh, it's almost as if uh, this miraculous translation has been sort of wiped off uh, the books of the church. And it's, uh, it's very sad for people who come from that area, like, you know, yours truly. <laughs> so well, so, so so what you're saying is Cardinal Sarah said that we're not going to call this the feast of the translation of the Holy House of Loreto. We're now just yes. going to call it the feast of Our Lady of Loreto. And in exactly. doing that, he's taking he's taking the emphasis off the point of the entire feast, and it's that this little house, the the Holy Family's little house, was miraculously physically transported by by angelic beings um good angelic beings to the the countryside in italy and yes that's the point of the feast and to, to just say well we're not going to call it that anymore it almost you know you hate to say it but it really does smack of um of you know modernist just being embarrassed by miracles i mean it's exactly. obvious that bergoglio is is completely embarrassed by miracles and is constantly trying to say that miracles didn't happen and you know the the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes was just people sharing and and you know we've all we've heard that from for years and years from people other than Bergoglio but Bergoglio seems to have an absolutely visceral hatred of all of all of the miracles so that when when little subtle things like this happen it really even even with um a cardinal who's who's considered to be one of one of the farthest quote unquote right on the spectrum um cardinal sarah that even cardinal sarah is doing little things like this that are downplaying miracles and just you know shifting it on to let's just call it another feast of our lady and we'll call it our lady of loreto well i mean she was actually never she was never at loreto because loreto is a little village in italy it has she never lived there i mean there, there's there's she never visited it there's nothing like that so it it really is a tragedy that that happened and and i, I agree with you it's a tragedy that it was cardinal sarah of all people who did it 
Yeah. Well, St. Thomas, on the contrary, actually believed that if the, uh, the church celebrates something, well, this something should be holy. Well, the church would never celebrate something uh, that is not holy. So that's why, for example, we celebrate uh, the birth of St. John the Baptist, because St. John the Baptist was holy at the moment of his birth. He didn't need a, any baptism because he was uh, sanctified in the uterus of his mother, St. Elizabeth, uh, upon hearing the, 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 the greeting of, uh, of Our Lady, in fact. And uh, <clears throat> similarly, we also have the Nativity of Our Lady. Well, that's uh, you know like pretty obvious. But we also have the the, the feast uh, that celebrates the conception of Our Lady, and that already happened in the time of Saint Thomas. So Saint Thomas says, well, if people are celebrating that, there should be something about it. And so he was trusting, in fact, uh, the sensus fidelium, the the the, the faith of, uh, of people who were celebrating this feast. That's a very interesting point because it will be uh, coming up later on, probably if we talk about uh, another episode uh, in this uh, fantastic history. Well, <clears throat> uh, St. Thomas does not elaborate a lot. So he says, well, we, we celebrate uh, her conception, but by celebrating her conception, we essentially celebrate her sanctification, but we don't know exactly when it happened. So this is what he wrote in the Summa. And uh, this should not be surprising us because after all, St. Thomas was uh, was a man, uh, I would say like us, but probably a bit brighter, a bit, a bit holier. Yeah, just, a bit. just a little bit. Yeah, just, a, just a little bit, just a bit humbler than us. But, but, but uh, he, he changed his mind many times. Sometimes he even tells us so. I mean, about the, the knowledge that uh, our Lord has uh, as a human being, St. Thomas famously changed his opinion. So when he, in his youth, he said, he, uh, our Lord doesn't have acquired knowledge, uh, experiential knowledge. Um, later on in the Summa, for example, he says, well, I changed my mind. He, he said it openly. I changed my mind. Now I think that he also has experiential knowledge. I mean, in his youth, he, he said, well, well, that's just uh, superfluous because, I mean, he knows everything by infused uh, science, infused uh, wisdom uh, as a human being. He knows everything as a human being because he sees God. Because another interesting thing, also... Uh, supported by the church later on, but nobody talks about it nowadays. Our Lord and Savior, from the instant of his conception, was, of course, uh, hypostatically united to uh, to God, uh, so quite a human being, but was also having the beatific vision from the instant of the conception, something that today is entirely forgotten, I think. And uh, and that that this is something not only that was proclaimed by St. Thomas, but also uh, sort of affirmed by the church, by the Holy Office, uh, back in the early 20th century. Anyway, so St. Thomas says that um, <clears throat> we don't know when uh, when uh, this sanctification happened because he had this idea about the human formation that for him does not apply to our Lord, but probably might be applied to Our Lady. And the reason why it may apply to her is because she um, she should be, in a sense, inferior uh, to our Lord, I and mean, he's explicit about that. So, uh, our Lord doesn't need anything at all from anyone. She must be somehow in need, and the the formulation that Pius IX offers is pretty much in line with that. Because after all, yes, she got the most extraordinary grace of all, but uh, she got it in virtue of the merits of her of her son. Right, and it goes back. You you use the two words. It's preventative versus cleansing 
Um, it, the, I think for a lot of Americans, um, especially people who <laughs> went through RCIA, you probably heard the explanation, the, the, uh, the analogy that it would be like, it's the difference between falling into a mud puddle and having someone stick out their arm and keep you from falling into a, into a mud puddle in the first place. The person who falls in is obviously now covered in mud. They're stained, and so they have to be cleansed. Um, the person who someone comes along, and in this case, that someone is our Lord, um, crucified, he sticks out his arm and he prevents you from falling into the mud puddle. But if he hadn't done that, presumably, you would have fallen into the mud puddle. Um, and so it, it, whether it's him picking you up out of it and cleansing you, or whether it's him preventing you from falling in the first place, as he did with Our Lady, it's, it's still him, and he's still the actor, and everybody is still dependent upon him for their justification. Yeah, can we? Uh, I, I would like to suggest to also look for a second at the psychology of Our Lady. No, uh, so think about her. She knows that she's um, destined to become the mother of the Savior, that the mother of God. In fact, she knows that she is the um, highest creature that God ever created. She knows it, and yet, and yet, she is so humble. How does that happen? Just because she is aware that it's a grace for her to be what she is. So when uh, when she says in the Magnificat, uh, he looked upon the the humility of uh, his maiden servant, or I don't know what's the, the English translation. yes. Well, <clears throat> she proclaims herself humble. In the same lines, she says, "Every generation will call me blessed." Will call me blessed. Uh, of course, of course, every generation will call her blessed, because she 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 is the matter of God. So she is perfectly aware of being what she is, and yet she's able to keep humility. I mean, it reminds me of um, St. Therese of Lisieux, uh, who said, well, there are some people who uh, have been preserved from uh, falling into mortal sin. Well, these people uh, could lose humility because they, they can become uh, prideful because, uh, after all, they are better than others who have actually fallen into mortal sin. And um, we know that uh, after repentance, uh, past sin are an occasion of humiliation, of, uh, of developing the virtue of humility, of making penance. So, um, as St. Augustine would say, everything uh, cooperates to the good of uh, those who love God, now by quoting St. Paul, and and, and St. Augustine would, would add, even sins, even past forgiven sins, because by remembering uh, that you have been forgiven, you develop the virtue of humility and the virtue of penance. Well, so then, true, and that's why so many yeah. of us bristle. And I bet everybody out there listening, if you've if you've been to confession more than a handful of times, you've probably heard something along the lines of, you know, don't don't ever think about or bring up any of your past sins ever again, because then you're you're doubting in God's mercy or something, and that that's so wrong, because you need to keep thinking about um, what you did and and. For a lot of people, it's developing a deeper understanding of of how wrong what you did was. Yes. That as you as you advance in holiness, you should look back at the sins of your former life and be ever more disgusted and 
and have, you know, for lack of a better word, just say to yourself, man, what was I thinking? How could I have done that? Whereas when they were first forgiven in the confessional, when you first um, confess them, maybe you had just a, a very uh, shallow knowledge. In fact, a lot of people confess sins that they really don't understand why it is what they did was sinful. They just know it was a sin and they need to confess it. Well, it's it's obviously a, a, a manifestation of advancing in holiness if you do develop an understanding of, of why it was wrong and how bad in fact it was. And the fact of the matter is, is that because every sin is an infinite offense against the infinitely good um, trinity, we can, prop, we can never, we can never have a full grasp of how much of an offense our sins were because we cannot grasp the infinite by definition. So, exactly. yeah. Now, if, if I can jump in on that. So there's an interesting uh, observation that is made by St. Alphonsus, and he says, and if you go to confession and you only confess venial sin, I mean, as, uh, you know, it like, uh, should be your your uh, desire because uh, you don't want to fall in mortal sin. I mean, a any Christian should desire to die rather than to fall into mortal sin. Well, then, um, in order to offer some sort of matter for uh, the absolution, in order to not to commit a sacrilege, in fact, if you are not really repented of these uh, venial sins that you are confessing, well then, why don't you bring up something of your past life, if there is some, something of, this, of that sort, so that uh, the infusion of grace that happens at confession has an occasion, uh, so that uh, Christ can actually give you more grace, and, you know, through the sacrament, because otherwise, if you confess this venial sin and you are not entirely sorrowful for them you're not ready to you know like take all means to eradicate these sins and so forth but you risk uh, uh doing a sacrilegious confession yeah so and that, that's that's, that's almost the the greater risk um I, I i would say that most of the time when people are confessing mortal sins i mean they have some sort of a an understanding of the gravity of it and and want to stop and have really thought about that whereas if you confess something like you know just something venial um white lies of convenience or you know just go down the list of um uh Use, use of language or vulgarity or something like that and you're really not if if you're with those venial sins it's it's oftentimes harder to stir up that that feeling and that sentiment of I've, I've got to stop this. Whereas, I mean, you can imagine in the world today where there are people who are mired in horrific mortal sin that, yeah, it's it's almost in a sense easier to go into the confessional and, and have very, very strong um, feelings, intentions, um, desires to, to stop committing mortal sins. It's the venial that it's, it's kind of hard to get excited about them. So yeah, be careful with that. And I'd heard the same thing too, and I'm sure I'm sure it comes from the same source of St. Alphonsus. Say, yeah, St. Alphonsus, as you know, was scrupulous. I mean, was uh, uh, the, the master of, uh, you know, old-fashioned uh, confessors like Padre Pio. And thank God now <laughs> we live, we live in, a, in, a, in a different uh, uh, world. In a, we have different worldviews. But, uh, you know, if you stick to St. Alphonsus, yeah, sure. Uh, repeat uh, the sins of your past life if you, if you have any. 
Yeah, and find, just say, you find, could just say at the end, I renounce all the sins of my former life, which include da 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 da. And you know, you you don't have to go into detail. You just say, you know, no. let, let's say for example, someone um, committed adultery years and years and years ago. Okay, say I renounce all the sins of my former life, which include adultery. That's all you have to say. You don't have to. You don't have to tell the whole story, and nor should you. So it's yeah, not. It's yeah. not difficult to do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so uh, so this was a tangent from uh, you know like Saint Therese saying that uh, well, if you uh, lived uh, without ever committing a moral sin, well then uh, you are preserved from it. So you should be even more grateful than the sinner who uh, got the grace of uh, reconciliation with God. So this is what she said, and I'm sure that Our Lady was living that you know like to the highest uh, highest capacity to the highest extent. Okay, so back to St. Thomas. In uh, 1515, so uh, a guy you should be liking a lot, so Cardinal Kachtan, Cardinal Kachtan, who was a staunch anti-mask um, agitprop. Uh, so <laughs> but, <laughs> no, he, he wrote, so Cardinal Kachtan is famous in history because he was the papal envoy uh, to speak to, to Luther in uh, Augsburg uh, when, uh, you know, Rome was still uh, hoping to bring back Luther to um, to sanity, and uh, Cardinal Kajdan was uh, for for a while was the general master of the, the Dominicans. Then he was made a cardinal. He was still a cardinal towards the end of his tenure as a general. Then you know he worked as a cardinal, uh, wrote all sorts of things. He wrote an extensive commentary on the Summa by Saint Thomas. He also wrote um, a commentary on his uh, philosophical works. And uh, so uh, I mentioned the anti-mask thing because it's funny. So St. Thomas has uh, a question on obedience in his Summa and uh, Kashtan in, in his commentary says, well, then uh, what should we, uh, uh, what are the domains of obedience? Well, he says, well, certainly not something that pertains to our own body and our own, our own uh, life. So for example, the type of food we want to eat or uh, uh, all sorts of covering, all sorts of uh, clothing that we wear. So we shouldn't be uh, obeying any human authority on that. So I found that very funny uh, that Kashtan was some sort of a, an anti-mask guy uh, mm. before <laughs> before it was cool. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when it comes to um, the macro conception, uh, so we are at the time, uh, we are in, so the Pope is uh, Pope Leo X, Pope Leo X is presented as, you know, like this uh, example of corruption of, uh, you know, like the Renaissance popes. I mean, he was absolutely not uh, such a pope. What was his uh, last name? Well, his last name was Medici. Oh, he was a Medici. Okay, yes. Okay. His last name was Medici, yes. So Leo X is the one who, who wrote the Exurge Domine where, to condemn Luther. So he was the first to condemn Luther. And he was also the Pope at the time of the Fifth Lateran Council. I mean, as you know, I mean, I and my family have a devotion to St. Casimir, the patron of Lithuania. And so we, we looked a bit at the uh, paper trail for his canonization. St. Casimir, Casimir had the chance of being the brother of um, then King of Poland, uh, Grand Duke of Lithuania. So uh, Pope Leo wanted to make sure that uh, he was not canonized uh, just because of the pressure of his brother, for example. So he was a conscientious, conscientious uh, Pope, in a sense, and we see that also uh, when it comes to the Immaculate Conception. So he was the Pope at the time of the Fifth Lateran Council. It was the time that many people uh, saw as an opportunity to proclaim uh, the dogma, but 
uh, before uh, deciding to proclaim the dogma, he asked Cardinal Cashton to uh, to write uh, a paper on that. And so we have this uh, this paper by Cashton on the on the Immaculate Conception. And Cashton, of course, distinguishes the two options: either uh, she was preserved from uh, original sin, or she was cleansed from original sin. And he finds well, it, uh, he finds that we have to look at the sources of revelation. The sources are, of course. And the Bible, the liturgy, the uh, the fires, but also private revelations. Of course, they have a different weight, and uh, he weighs more the Bible and the fathers and uh, and the liturgy as it should be. And so his conclusion is that it's more probable that she was cleansed rather than she was uh, preserved from original sin. So <clears throat> this uh, generated a controversy because uh, one of his confrères, a certain um, Ambrosius Caterinus, Catarinus, who was a staunch anti-Lutheran uh, writer of those times, and he took part later on in the uh, Council of Trent as Bishop of Minori, later on Archbishop of Conza, close to Naples. This Catarinus wrote uh, a beautiful treatise to, the, to defend the macro conception. He says, well, look, Let's go back to the argument that St. Thomas made. Well, St. Thomas clearly didn't have a clear, uh, clear-cut opinion on the Immaculate Conception while he was writing the, the Summa. But his principle, if the Church celebrates something, this something is holy, uh, still applies. And the Church not only celebrated in his time, but uh, by the time uh, Catarinus was, uh, was writing, the Universal Church uh, was celebrating the Immaculate Conception. I mean, it was not yet a compulsory celebration, so it was not mandated by Rome, but it was allowed by Rome um, all, all over the world. The Dominicans themselves started celebrating uh, the Immaculate Conception. The Dominicans were the were usually against the proclamation of the dogma because they were not sure about the interpretation of St. Thomas. And St. Thomas is uh, was a Dominican, as everyone knows. So, <clears throat> Catarinus is the author... Uh, of these arguments, uh, so if the church celebrates it, well, then it should be holy. And and, and let's let's point out and remind everyone that um, the the church, when it's celebrating um, conception, the subsequent birth is always that feast is always nine months to the day later. So the church is not celebrating, you know, anything like Thomas's nebulous nebulous idea of when ensoulment occurred you know presumably at some point in the first or early second trimester anything like that no 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 all of these feasts that are celebrating somebody's conception the feast is nine months to the day before the feast of the subsequent birth of that person and so there's the church was never ambiguous about any of this at all. When they're talking about conception, they're talking about, you know, day one, the the what happens after the the husband and the wife come together, and then nine exactly. months later, yeah. Exactly. So, Catarinus <clears throat> uh, is. Uh... He's an interesting guy because he got into troubles for the celebration of the Immaculate Conception. So in the in the 20s of the 16th century, the, the town of Siena was still independent, was not in the in the larger, broader state of Florence, and uh, was trying to fight for its independence from, uh, uh, from the army of Florence. 
And so they made a vow. They made a vow that they would have celebrated the Immaculate Conception of Our, of Our Lady had they been uh, preserved in their independence. And uh, and so uh, the the city later on uh, mandated all priests to celebrate the Immaculate Conception uh, on the day on the day of the feast, because as you know, um, so there is this uh, amazing uh, painting is, uh, by Duccio di Buoninsegna, La Maestà. So why is it called uh, the Majesty, Her Majesty? It's a it's a painting portraying Our Lady uh, with Baby Jesus. And why is it uh, the majesty of Siena? Well, because formerly um, Siena was uh, was a kingdom, uh, like on paper at least, and the queen, the eternal queen, uh, was Our Lady, and the 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 democratic government was just um, governing on her behalf. But uh, she, the town was consecrated to Our Lady, uh, as uh, to her queen. So now you have these uh, odd things in North Korea with, you know, like eternal presidents and so forth. Well, uh, that was uh, much more real. And yes. Um, yes. <laughs> 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 and, uh, and so they decided, so the, the civic government decided to, uh, to uh, introduce the celebration of the Immaculate Conception in all, in all churches. And Catarinus was um, a Dominican priest and the prior of the, of the comment of the Holy Spirit. There were two comments back in the days. One is St. Dominic still exists with the, the relics of the head of St. Catherine. And the other is uh, was Holy Spirit. He, he was the prior of that comment and he celebrated the Mass. So he got into trouble for, uh, with the order. They wanted to kick him out for that reason. Be because because Cajetan uh, was doubtful about it. And, you know, like Cajetan was Cajetan back in the days. So the Pope uh, ended up finding a solution. He named uh, Catarinus Bishop of a very minor diocese and this enabled Catarinus to uh, take part in the Council of Trent, where he lobbied to uh, introduce the universal feast of the, the Immaculate Conception. He didn't manage to get it, um, but uh, he took part in the Council. I mean, he was, uh, of course, one, was already uh, before that uh, an anti-Lutheran author, and uh, uh, he, he brought his contribution to, to the Council, quite simply. So after that, um, it became virtually impossible to... Uh, to criticize the Immaculate Conception. But then you have uh, lots of private revelations that happen more or less at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, excuse me, of the 19th century, the Miraculous Medal especially. That, So you you know that, uh, uh, okay, the Miraculous Medal apparition to St. Catherine Labouré happened in Rue du Bac in Paris, uh, where Our Lady desired uh, a medal in her honor with this prayer uh, written on it. Uh, o Mary, conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee. So, conceived without sin is in the prayer that Our Lady uh, requested. And then, uh, later on, uh, Our Lady appeared again in Rome, in the church of uh, Sant'Andrea delle Fratte, to Adolphe Ratisbon, who uh, was a, I mean, he, a man who was born in a, into a Jewish family, but I mean, he had uh, abandoned even the practice of uh, a Jewish religion, and he was a practical atheist, but uh, he was convinced by one of his friends to, to wear the medal. He entered the church just uh, on a sightseeing tour, so the church uh, happens to be right uh, behind uh, Propaganda Fide, so very close to Piazza di Spagna, where there is the, the famous uh, statue of the Immaculate Conception. It was built uh, at the request of the, the Spaniards who had a devotion to the Immaculate Conception. 
So uh, in this church, Santa Andrea de Frate, Our Lady appeared immediately to Adolfratis Bon, and she told him, uh, "Get back into, uh, get on your knees, uh, convert. I mean, it's time to, uh, you know, change your life." I mean, he became became Catholic. He 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 became a priest, a missionary to the the Far East. That very altar where Our Lady appeared, Saint Maximilian Kolbe, one of the missionary of the Immaculate, decided to celebrate his first mass. So. There's this link uh, uh, in all these sort of private apparitions and uh, uh, lives of saints to uh, to the Immaculate later on in the, in the uh, 19th century uh, around the definition of the dogma. But uh, long before that, there was uh, this uh, theological discussion uh, as to whether the Immaculate Conception had to be introduced as a dogma of the Church. And if yes, should we define it as the fact that Our Lady was entirely preserved from from original sin or she was cleansed from uh, original sin at some point after uh, her coming into existence as a human being now saint thomas uh, lays out lays out uh, the foundation for the definition because he says well she cannot be um, cleansed or preserved before her animation before her, her ensoulment because you have no human being before the the introduction of the soul well, when the soul is added uh, to to the matter, well, that's uh, for the biologist to to establish, because it's a, a, an empirical question to this, to decide whether you have matter that is adequate to receive uh, a rational soul. I think so. I think uh, his uh, his teaching is perfectly compatible with the idea that we receive our human soul from day one as you say all of us i mean including you and me and you know like any other human being who happen not to be our lord or, or our lady just because we know that dna is the same from day one to uh, the last day um, and he added also that uh, saint thomas i mean uh, added also that um she must have been uh purified she must have received this grace had it whether it is a grace of preservation or of um, reconciliation with god in virtue of the merits of jesus christ because you have to save that passage from the epistle to the romans uh, that we read together a moment ago and so in this way he laid down the the foundation of the proclamation of the dogma uh, so in this sense uh, yes saint thomas was undecided but the uh, the proclamation of the dogma owns a lot uh, to him Mm -hmm. Interesting. So I would touch on because I actually have this book in my in my library still. I, I um, acquired it after I um, left Denver and moved to the van down by the river. Um, Thomas has something in his commentary on the Hail Mary himself and uh, on the Hail Mary itself that points to to what he's thinking. Yes. Yes, yes. Well, okay, so the commentary on the Hail Mary is, uh, is a very short treatise that St. Thomas wrote towards the end of his life. Uh, St. Thomas, let us remember, died on the 7th of March, 1274, which is the date of his, uh, uh, of his feast in the, in the old calendar. In the new calendar, they moved him to, to the end of January. And towards the end of his life, I mean, St. Thomas stopped writing, by the way, because now he had he he was falling often into ecstasy while celebrating mass, 
and uh, after everything that he saw, no, he he decided he he, he deemed uh, pointless to to keep writing because he could not express what he saw. Uh, but uh, you know, shortly before stopping to write, he wrote a commentary on the Hail Mary, the first part, because the second part was uh, essentially introduced later on. I mean, the, the way we pray the Hail Mary today has been introduced probably by Saint Pius V. At least, I mean, it was codified at the time of Saint Pius V. In this commentary, Saint Thomas says, "Yeah, sure, Our Lady is immaculate. Our Lady uh, did not uh, was not stained by original sin, but she was conceived in sin." Uh, so he he's still a bit ambivalent in that um, in that commentary, in a sense, if you want, or probably you should interpret this commentary as as, as implying that Our Lady uh, was conceived the way all humans are conceived, i.e., as a you know, like a, a descendant of Adam and Eve. So, in so, so what he's what yeah. he's trying to drive home is he's trying to make it clear that Our Lady was conceived. Um, as the result of Saint Joachim and Saint Anna, her parents, engaging in the marital embrace, just just like everybody else, drawing the distinction that she was not conceived completely miraculously without any um, marital act taking place. And I, I think that's a very important distinction to make. Yes, yeah, she was conceived as the result of the marital embrace. But also regarding to that, I mean, he he doesn't really um, introduce the topic. It's an interesting topic. This uh, uh, how would uh, men and women be conceived had there not been uh, original sin? Uh, Saint Thomas says, well, uh, sexual uh, difference was already there before the sin because you have a man and a woman. Look at the bodies. Uh, I mean, the bodies are clearly engineered for that. So yes, exactly. Yeah. So you, because another principle of uh, you know, St. Thomas' philosophy is that you have um, individuation in the same species of a composite substance in virtue of the matter. So we, we, we are uh, many human beings, we share in the same, same species, but we are many. And so this multiplication is possible because, uh, you know, like there is the reproduction and um, everything that goes together with it. And St. Thomas says, well, it should have been more or less the same also before the fall. I was reading... Uh, Bless Catherine Emmerich that says, well, in fact, it should have, must have been different had there not been any fall. And in the case of uh, Joachim and Anne, uh, it was different as well. Uh, not meaning that there was no conjugal embrace or anything like that, but everything was pure, everything was, yeah. So there was no stain of sin, it was spotless. And that, that was certainly a grace also given to uh, Joachim and Anne, according to uh, the revelation made to um, blessed Catherine Emmerich. St. Thomas seems to imply something different in his commentary on the Hail Mary. He says, well, okay, I mean, she's just, um, just she's a daughter of Adam, like uh, everyone else is, so she was conceived in sin as well, um, which you can interpret either as something that is compatible with the, the idea of... Um, she was uh, sanctified, so she was cleansed. But you, you could also say that she would have inherited original sin in a sense had she not been preserved. So it's uh, again, it's it's a bit ambiguous. It's still at the stage of the the comment on the Hail Mary. There, there are some authors who stress the fact that since he talks about her as the Immaculate in the commentary on the Hail Mary, well, he must have reverted to 
uh, his uh, the opinion of his youth, where he was, you know, like uh, clearly in favor of the immaculate conception thesis, because he he talks about her as immaculate. So how can she be immaculate if there was a spot uh, from the instant of her from her first instance of existence? The only thing is that in Saint Thomas, it's not clear when the first instance of existence of Our Lady happens. Did it happen on day one or roughly in the first trimester, you know, from day 40 to day 80, as it would happen for anyone else in his, uh, you know, like biological understanding of how things work. Um, so that's, that's not clear. But for him, it's clear that from the instant of her animation, she was immaculate. And he says that in the, in the uh, commentary on the Hail Mary. So by saying she was conceived in sin, probably he means that the matter uh, that was predisposed to receiving the most holy soul um, of uh, of Our Lady, that matter uh, that was the result of uh, you know like uh, the conjugal embrace of uh, Saint Joachim and Saint Anne, uh, would have been disposed to um, to the spot that comes with with being a descendant of Adam, but it wasn't because of a miraculous intervention by God. So this does, yeah, does not take away the possibility of her being preserved entirely from day one. At the later stage, when he wrote the the commentary on uh, on the on the Hail Mary, uh, in the sort of like the, the mid stage, so when we did the the Summa, uh, well, probably Saint Thomas was thinking that uh, um, sh she was cleansed, she was not preserved, because this this is what seems to be implied by his wording. He says. What we have to make sure is that our Lord didn't need anything. And she needed, uh, so she, she was not in a par with him. Yeah. So, uh, which seems to entail that she was cleansed on, in virtue of the merits of Christ, of Christ. There are also authors who interpret St. Thomas as simply saying, well, yeah, sure, she was preserved immaculate entirely. Uh, and this is in virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, the way in which it was worded by Pope uh, Pius IX. In that very passage in the Summa, St. Thomas adds, the church never celebrates something that is not holy. And he is aware of the fact that the church celebrates um, the, the conception. He does not draw the conclusion, he doesn't take home the conclusion that she's immaculate because some churches celebrate it. But uh, this conclusion was drawn by uh, uh, Ambrosius Caterinus, uh, Caterinus the, the Renaissance guy who happened to clash with uh, Kashtan concerning the immaculate. Okay, so it's uh... so I think just bringing it all together now. I think a point that's that's really critical for our listeners is is that you know Thomas is not above the church. When the church defined it, when Pius the Ninth defined it, that's it. And even if it turns out that for periods of time, um, Thomas was. Um, anywhere from you could describe it as using using ambiguous language all the way to even if you want to apply the label unsound at certain periods in his in his career um, we we know what the truth is because Holy Mother Church defined it and so you don't need to sit you don't really need to agonize about well if if thomas at some point said xyz then what what if what if that is true no see we know we know exactly what the truth is because holy mother church has defined it and then you know looking at thomas 
I mean, obviously, he is, he's the angelic doctor, and his word has tremendous weight. But when Holy Mother Church speaks, if, if what Holy Mother Church defines is not congruent with Thomas, well, I, I, you shouldn't even phrase it that way. If what Thomas says is not congruent with what, with what Holy Mother Church defines, then we know who's right and we know who's wrong in this whole discussion. But it, it is absolutely fascinating to discuss this. And I think I personally find it's edifying precisely because of kind of what we hit on early in the conversation, that as technology has developed and improved, and we now know and can even see all of these processes happen, conception, so on and so forth, the development of the development of, um, of embryonic and then, you know, babies in, in utero, yes. everything is confirmed. Every single aspect of this is confirmed, and the church got it right, and the church got it right even before there was the technology to confirm Absolutely. all of this. And that, to Absolutely. me, that is being a person who, who's always loved science and, and things like that, to, to have all of these scientific confirmations of these things emerge that's that's one of the coolest things and it's one of the the greatest um you know yeah we don't have we don't have the kind of miracles of you know flying saints and 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 things like that going on so much today um people centuries ago god gave them that benefit but you know what we do have we have the technology that can that can confirm everything and then reveal to us things that we couldn't even imagine. The, I mean, the ability to look out into the cosmos, into the, into the physical universe, and we can see things and we can see stars and galaxies that no one else has ever, ever, ever been able to see. So while people centuries ago, they got to see people levitate and fly and do all kinds of cool things like that, Look at all the cool things that 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 we get to that we have the benefit of, and that most of us frankly squander. And going back to Our Lady and her Immaculate Conception, finding out about stem cells, how um, women retain stem cells of every child that they carry in their bodies for the rest of their lives, and and so Our Lady, her the fact that she was the Ark of the New Covenant, that she was. Um, she was without stain it's because not only while she was carrying our Lord before his birth in Bethlehem she continued to carry stem cells of his with 100% his DNA in her body through the entire rest of her life she was a tabernacle literally she was a tabernacle for the entire rest of her life and that explains why she was assumed body and soul into heaven because her body she was a tabernacle you can't just leave the 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 corpse to rot because her body contained our Lord's cells and our Lord's DNA. So that's just another incredible confirming set. And it kind of ties all back into this um, of how immaculate conception and then, you know, the conception, the annunciation and the conception of our Lord and how that all carried all the way through, all the way, not only to his death and resurrection, but to her death and assumption. It's it, science confirms all of it. And to me, 
I think it, I think it's wonderful to sit around and have conversations like this. Yeah, for me, for me, what is fascinating is that you know, like if you get the basic of Saint Thomas metaphysics, uh, the decision of the church and what the science tells us today uh, makes perfect sense and tells and are and is perfectly in agreement. So, the metaphysics of of the the forms that uh, replace themselves and should be uh, proportionate to the receiving matter uh, goes perfectly hand in hand with the idea that uh, you have animation from day one mm-hmm. because because the matter is the same. The matter, the, the the confirmation of the matter is the same. In in that, you have the same DNA from day one to the last day That's of right. the living, uh, the life of an existing human being. Yep. And for me, that that is fascinating because you have you know again among scholars lots of uh, talk about whether Saint Thomas would have been in favor of uh, abortion or uh, whether he would have uh, you know like uh, proposed different rights from for the embryo and for the uh, for the child, in that the embryo is not yet a human being, and so forth and so forth, because they, these people only look at uh, the literal wording of St. Thomas without getting the idea behind. The mm-hmm. idea being that if you have this information, then you have a human being. He, For him, it was an empirical question to discover whether the information is there or not, whether it can be received in this particular chunk of matter or not. And remember, just reiterating the point you made very early on, when we say information, what we are talking about is DNA. That's what we're talking about. Yes. Yes. Yeah, because why do I talk about information or order or structure or form, if you want to use an Aristotelian term? Because you cannot reduce the order between the elements of the DNA to to chance. To So it's not that by putting together... <clears throat> the bricks that uh, that make DNA, that be, make chromosomes, you get, um, you know, like the code of a human being. There must be an order that precedes it, and this order uh, cannot be reduced to to matter itself. Should be out of it. So it's uh, what we call the form. You, you, so you can't be a materialist. I mean, you can be a materialist, but you would have to accept the idea that order comes out of cows, of right. chaos, yeah, chaos. Exactly. yeah, yeah, or, order up cow. No, as uh, you know, we are accustomed to say these days. Uh, no. Well, you remember, <laughs> friends, remember who that is the motto of: from order, chaos, from order, from chaos, order. Ab caos ordine in Latin. That ah, is cow, the motto. Yeah, that is the motto of the Freemasons, and. Not coincidentally, what did Bergoglio declare the motto of his <laughs> uh, yeah. anti-papacy? What did he declare the motto of his anti-papacy to be very early on? I believe it was at World Youth Day in Brazil. In Spanish, Agan Leo, which is make a mess, literally. And colloquially in English, you would translate that to raise hell. Um, that's usually how it's colloquially, colloquially translated. But literally in Spanish, Agan Leo means make a mess, chaos. He is an agent of chaos. And so it only takes one logical step to figure out who, who, who he's an agent of exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, no, I, I... 
No, so uh, you know, I, I of course uh, uh, take distance from all these uh, statements by Madame Barnard, but uh, you know. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, I've 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 sat across the dinner table from you with with a bottle of wine open, and I I might take issue with that. I might take issue with that statement there, sir. <laughs> yes, you know, so, so I cannot, uh, you know, like uh, neither affirm nor deny what uh, what has been claimed here. But you know, I'm just uh, like. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just stating, you know, in the abstract, that uh, you know, you have two uh, two options. You have either the option of order or the option of disorder, and then it's up to you to choose. Essentially, and uh, in, in the option to, of order, uh, well, then philosophically, you have to accept the idea of form, and uh, that sets you on the on the path of Plato, Aristotle, and Saint Thomas. Essentially, so that's why Saint Thomas uh, is still a help for us to understand the macro conception of Our Lady. And uh, yeah, so the other thing is, it's, it's very funny because. Uh, uh, you know, like th there are all these people who try to argue for all these um, ideas that come from from the other side, the side of you know, like uh, uh, ordo ab cao, uh, so abortion uh, uh, and other things, and uh, and they try to use Saint Thomas, and uh, so uh, so I think we should another thing that we should insist on is to state again uh, what was the actual position of Saint Thomas, even though. Uh, this means to interpret a bit the the literal meaning of his words and to to get to take home, uh, you know, what he really meant. Right, exactly. And when I think probably one of the most famous people right now who is keeps making these absolutely horrible evil statements is Nancy Pol Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi is the one who keeps saying, "Well, the church has never had any formally on abortion." And you're like, "What are you talking about, woman? What are you talking about?" And one of the shady dishonest talking points that that witches like Nancy Pelosi use is trying to twist exactly what we've been talking about, trying to twist Thomas into saying something that he didn't say at all. Um, and so it's up to us to to delve into this, get the nuance. Sadly, lay people end up we end up self-educating or educating each other because the 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 bishops and the and the cardinal princes of the church just can't be bothered to a large extent. So that's that's okay. We we have the technology and we have the ability to do it. And so we'll we'll throw our our little effort in and and hope that good things come out of it. So I think now would be a good time to kind of wrap this up. And what I would like for you to do, Dr. Luca, is you have um, some courses coming up that are starting in um, January, in January, early January 20. of 2021. So tell yes. everybody a little bit about those courses. Yeah, if we are still there in uh, January 2021. Yes, if we're all still <laughs> here, yes. <laughs> if we are still here. Uh, so there's going to be two courses. So uh, 2021 is the 700 year anniversary from the, the death of uh, Dante Alighieri. So I'm offering an online course on uh, on Dante and his word. And I'm also offering uh, an introduction to to philosophy. So we will look at the, the history of philosophy from... Uh, uh, from the, the point of view of, of St. Thomas Aquinas, from, from the beginning to St. Thomas himself. So I'm offering these two courses at aquinasforall.com, and every, everyone who is interested can, can go there. And your uh, platform is Zoom, is that correct? Zoom, yes, okay. that's correct. And you can pay by PayPal. Oh, and what's the cost? If you take just one course, it's... I, I asked $250 uh, American, and uh, for two courses, uh, for uh, both courses, it's uh, 389 
Wow. Well, and there's going to be, it's, it's an entire semester. So how many, how many class sessions are there for each? So there are, for each, there are 14 uh, class sessions, like, uh, like in a normal uh, semester at any given university. And uh, so each session is about two hours. Uh, and so there's going to be my presentation and then uh, all the time we need for, uh, uh, for discussion, question and answers and so forth. Nice. Wow. Well, I'm already enrolled and I'm really looking forward to it. And if it's anywhere close to as good as this conversation has been and, and the pre presentation of fascinating information, I know that your classes are going to be fantastic. So we've got Dr. Matza, the historian. We've got Dr. Luca, the philosopher slash historian. This this was pretty historical. Plus the literature, plus Dante. That's something that I've always wanted to do is take a, take a course on Dante. So um, if, if the folks were to enroll in the Dante course, you're going to be using Anthony Ezelin's translation. translation. So yes. it's, you'd, you would need to buy that and have that on hand, right? Well, it, it would be ideal. Of course, all the text that I'm going to read uh, would be in the uh, PowerPoint presentation. But, you know, for context, it's, it's good to have uh, the whole translation. And are we doing, is it going to be the entire Divine Comedy, or is it just going to be one of the three sections? No, no, we are going to cover uh, the entire Divine Comedy, but of course I'm going to do uh, selections. So, I mean, I can't read the, the whole of it. I'm going to do a selection and I will try to present Dante from the uh, viewpoint again of uh, St. Thomas philosophy and theology, because that's another funny thing. So uh, Dante, <clears throat> of course, was a devout Catholic, as everyone knows, uh, but um, in contemporary scholarship, there is a tendency to to stress that uh, among the sources of inspirations that were, you know, like these or that author, you know, this minor author here, this minor, that minor author there, there were the Arabs, there were minor Latins, and so forth. And we lose sight of uh, the most evident fact, i.e., that uh, Saint Thomas Aquinas was his uh, main source of inspiration. And that was pretty much clear to uh, anyone who read Dante from the beginning to hundred years ago, and then. You know, like uh, modern scholarship got it blurred a bit because they needed to say something new or more appealing to modern ears. And so <laughs> uh, we will try to unpack that. Uh, and, and it's beautiful to um, to do a course for uh, you know people who don't have uh, any prior acquaintance with Dante, precisely because the most obvious has to be stated. And the most obvious is even the most fascinating in this case. So Dante is just often, often is just uh, Aquinas put into into rhyme, and uh, and that's uh, yeah. I discovered Saint Thomas Aquinas through uh, the the footnotes to 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 Dante's Inferno uh, when I was in high school. So th this is one of the things that ruined my life uh, to read Dante. So I hope to uh, ruin your life. Is lots, that what you said? Of, yes. Lots, <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Ruin my life. So I I hope to ruin the life of many of your listeners as well. Oh, hooray! Let's all get our lives ruined together. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> yes. 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 It's, uh, I, I I learned marketing strategies from uh, from uh, you know, like uh, these American friends. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We we better stop here before this gets any better. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of marketing strategies. <laughs> All right. Well, Dr. Okay. Luca, I can't thank you enough. And um, we'll look forward to hopefully catching up with you again and maybe doing another episode of a, of a Barnhart podcast. And certainly I'll be looking forward to starting your classes um, the second week of January. So thanks very much. And thanks to all you listeners out there. And thanks as always to Super Nerd for doing all the post
post-production and all of the all of the nerdy stuff, which I don't do. Um, if you would like, if you received any benefit from this podcast and you would like to um, return a little bit of value to Super Nerd, his website is supernerdmedia.com. And of course, you all know where to find me, as always, at barnhart.biz. So until next time, I'm Anne. Thanks, guys, and God bless. Thank you.